The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you, Lois. All right, if you have not already done so, please open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to be starting in verse 25. And for the past several weeks, we have been studying the farewell discourse, which was Jesus' last words to his disciples before he is arrested and then crucified. And in chapters 13 through 16, Jesus addresses the disciples first. And next, in chapter 17, where we will be going, he is going to pray and address the Father. So our passage today, all right, is everybody still able to hear me? I heard there was some feedback. Are we good? Okay, sweet. Uh, point being, back to what I was saying, we're coming to the end of chapter 16, so this is the last words of Jesus to his disciples in the discourse. The last words to his disciples in this discourse, so it's important. And another distinctive is that although they've spent the entire discourse talking about how confused they are, now in verse 30, they say they finally understand. But we're going to see their understanding is incomplete and it's insufficient to help them face the mob that's coming for Jesus. So they shouldn't find courage in their frail understanding. Instead, Jesus says, they should find courage because he has overcome the world. So let's take a moment and begin by going to the Father in prayer. Please pray with me. Father, thank you <coughs> for loving us. Thank you for the privilege of coming to you. And today I just ask, Father, please show us the glory of Christ the victor. 
Help us see that no weapon, no enemy, no evil can stand against him. Forgive us for taking courage in our frail human understanding or for maybe living in fear of the enemy that you have already overcome. Help us today to take courage to live as you have called us to. We pray that you would be glorified today, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody still able to hear me? Everybody good? Okay. In the years leading up to World War II, the nation of Great Britain was tired and scarred from World War I. And so <clears throat> the nation lived in this terror that Germany would attack and start another great war. So they're so scared of offending the Nazis during this time that Hitler's preferences on things like their rearmament policies, even who they have come and vote into their own cabinet, his preferences start making effects and changing the decisions of the British government. In a speech, one prime minister in not so many words, even admitted he recognized the danger of Germany and the Nazi party, but out of fear, he did not act. But Winston Churchill and precious few others stood up and pointed out the great wickedness of the Nazi party and the need to prepare for war. Unlike the cowardly prime minister, he did this even though he knew the British people were tired and didn't want to hear this message. And he did it even though he knew the enemy would hate it. He knew war was coming, and so he boldly proclaimed the need to prepare for war. And in the end, the people came and followed the example of their leader and took courage to face the enemy. And similarly, what we've been reading in John 13 through 16, we've seen there is a battle there too, a war between Jesus and the world. And the world is this term that John uses. It's not referring to the earth and everyone in it. No, it's talking about, it's actually John's word for the sinful society in rebellion against Jesus. It's all the people who haven't repented and believed in Jesus. And Satan is actually called the ruler of that world, and it's said that he is coming for Jesus in John 14 through 30. And then in John 16, 20, it even says... When Jesus dies, the world is going to rejoice. But despite the coming danger, despite the enemy, Jesus takes courage and faces the enemy and calls his disciples to follow his example. And they can have courage not just because of his example, but actually because Jesus has triumphed. I think a lot of times we can still be a little bit more like the cowardly prime minister than like Winston Churchill. If you're like me, you have moments where we live our lives in fear of the sinful culture around us. How many of us have shied away from saying something we know is good and true because we know the world doesn't want to hear it? How many of us watch the news or check it and leave with this anxiety in the pit of our stomach as we think about the future? I believe even this fear seeps into the way we relate to God, the way we pray to God. 
And so we got to ask, what can give us hope and courage? John gives us two things. First, he says, take courage in the Father's love in verses 25 through 28. And second, take courage in Christ's victory in verses 29 through 33. These truths give us hope and courage to live our lives as God has called us to in the midst of these everyday battles that Christians face, which are oftentimes simple but scary all the same. But it helps because we see that these are battles in a war that has already been won by Christ. So first, let's look and see in verses 25 through 28 to take courage because of the Father's love. Look down with me, if you will, again at John 16, verse 25. Here's what Jesus says. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. That last verse kind of summarizes in many ways Jesus' mission, his ministry. He came from the Father to the sinful world, and the sinful world did not receive him. But after accomplishing his mission, he goes back to the Father. And although that's still clearer than many of the metaphors and statements Jesus has made, it's still a little cryptic because it doesn't even say anything about his death and resurrection, which he knows is coming. And if you're like me, you might just be wondering, Jesus, why don't you just come out and tell him the truth? Just tell him you're going to the cross, you're dying, and you're going to rise again. Well... I think one thing that helps us is if you look back at John 16, verse 12. Jesus actually answers this question. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Parents do the same thing. Maybe they come to their child and they know, okay, I've got to tell them they can't go to their friend's house. That's devastating news. And so they want to have an intelligent conversation first. And so instead of just starting out with the unbearable news, they begin maybe by telling a story. Or they teach their kids the importance of having godly friendships in their life, and only later do they come back to this truth that's hard for them to stomach. And it's the same here. Jesus knows they can't bear the truth yet. If he told them he was going to die just straight up, Peter and the others would start freaking out again, and he still wants to have an intelligent conversation. He still has important truths to communicate. And so he's talking a bit cryptically here. And one of the truths he wants to communicate is the boldness they should have in prayer. In verse 26, 26 speaking of prayer, he says, in that day, meaning the time after his death and resurrection. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So Jesus is here talking about this truth called the priesthood of believers, which is also clearly seen in 1 Peter 2, 
So in the Old Covenant, there was only a few, the priests, who could come directly to God, directly in the presence of God, and only through the sacrifice of bulls and goats. But in the New Covenant, Jesus is both our high priest and he makes us priests that can enter the holy place, that can come directly to the Father. Look up at the screen here and see Hebrews 10 talks about this as well. Starting in verse 19, it, Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we can come to God with confidence. And it says, John 16, 26 says, we can come in Jesus' name, which means we're coming through his sacrifice on our behalf, but Jesus wants to clarify here. It's not that he has to bring all of our requests to God, but we can personally in Jesus' name, pray directly to God the Father. For example, imagine there are two boys. You have Sam and Oliver, and they're best friends. But one day, tragically, Oliver's parents die. And Sam goes back to his parents, and he talks to them and comes up with this idea. And the parents go through the wonderful process of adopting Oliver into their family. But Sam's dad notices a trend over the years, over the months. Uh, it's going to be Sam who comes and keeps telling him, Oliver wants to play basketball. Oliver wants more pizza, and on and on and on. So Sam's dad sees what's going on here, and he takes a moment, and he stops, and he comes, and maybe he kneels down and looks into Oliver's eyes, and he says, Oliver, you can bring your request directly to me. I don't just love Sam. I love you. And it's the same thing that's happening here. This is what Jesus communicates in verse 27. Look down. He, he's just told his disciples they can come directly to the Father for or because the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So, Everyone who loves and believes in Jesus can pray directly to the Father with confidence because the Father doesn't just love Jesus. He loves you. And I think we need to apply this wonderful truth to the callous and to the fearful, to the people who are callous and the people who are fearful. First, to the callous, they might, you might take this for granted. If you're callous in here, you might not even understand why I'm having this conversation. You might say, of course I can come directly to God. I mean, that's what he's there for, right? To hear my requests. Maybe you wouldn't say it like that, but you might just think, so I can pray directly to God. So what? I mean, big deal. I think we feel that way because we don't understand the depth of our sin. And we don't understand the greatness of our God. In Leviticus 10, Nabad and Abihu come 
before the Lord in a callous, sinful way, and they are consumed. And that's what we deserve. When we just waltz in and act like we deserve to be before God because of our own righteousness, like we have some right to be there, we do not deserve that. We deserve His wrath and His punishment. But as Hebrews 10 says, if we have repented and believed in Christ, then His blood covers us. It's incredible that we sinful people can come and pray directly to a holy God. So I want to take a moment and maybe talk with the kids and the teens in the room. Let me help you think about maybe one sign that maybe you are being too callous about the privilege of prayer. A lot of times at home or in your class, somebody will ask a group, will you pray for us? And all the time what we see, you probably could do it right now, somebody asks that and everybody does this. They put their finger on the nose. That means, for all of you who don't know what that means, that means nose goes, not me. I don't want to pray. And I understand, I, kids and teens, I understand some of you are afraid of praying in public. I get that. But that nose goes attitude shows we don't understand the wonder of being able to pray directly to the Father. Jesus died so that you can go directly to God the Father in prayer Take advantage of that. And adults, I would just say, watch out for the manner in which you pray. A lot of times it can be callous. It can be flippant, as if you deserve to be there on your own righteousness. I think we need to slow down this week and first thank God for the honor of being able to come directly to Him. So that's the callous, but I think many of us are on the other boat, we are fearful. Many of you are all too aware of your sinfulness, and it probably seems very unwise to do what Hebrews 10 says and come directly to the Father, or do what Jesus is saying here and pray to the Father and not just let Him do all your praying for you. I think this truth helps us and shows us we do not need to live in that fear. I think maybe one sign we're doing that is when we come to God with this formal speech. Like we've got to have all the words just right. We can't say anything theologically incorrect. I think we need to remember the Father loves you. Start acting like it in your prayers. Some of you are in deep trials. I think some of you, your trials began even this week with a diagnosis you're not expecting. None of us were expecting. Maybe, maybe some of you are in trials that have been going on for a long time, months and years, but you feel like you can't pray honestly with God, like you can't tell Him what's truly going on in your heart. Not like David who said to the Father, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Brothers and sisters, you can pray like that too. Your honest feelings are not going to drive the Father away. Bring them to Him. Be honest in your suffering and keep coming back to the truth of the passage today you can come to the Father because He loves you. So first, 
Take courage in the Father's love, in verses 25 through 28. And our second point, take courage in Christ's victory, in verses 29 through 33. Look down at verse 29. Right after telling them, he came from the Father and is going back to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I think we should all be a little bit skeptical here of this response because uh, Jesus has just told them that in some future hour, he will speak to them plainly, but that's not right now. So they shouldn't assume they're out of the woods. I don't think they've got it all figured out. It's kind of like the other day when I tried to explain gravity to my five-year-old son. And at the end of it, I ask him, did you get that? And he's like, yep, I got it. And <laughs> he might have understood something. And he might even be able to say a few things. It keeps what keeps us from floating away, but he doesn't really get it. It's the same with the disciples here. It's good they believe Jesus came from God. That's true, but I don't think they understand all the depths of what that means. John's been talking about that phrase a lot. John chapter 9, verse 33, that's where we see that Jesus, if Jesus were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. So being from God means sharing in God's power. The phrase from God also has the idea of being in accord with God's will, and even carrying some of that weight of authority as well. But the disciples, they might get some of that, but they don't get what John 1:14 says, which says about Jesus, the word, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is from the Father in such a way that he shares the exact same nature as God the Father, the glory of God the Father. And you can tell the disciples don't really get that because of Jesus' words next in verse 31. Look down there. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And I do love that last phrase. It's that beautiful picture that Jesus is not just from the Father, but the Father is with him. And even in the next chapter, we're going to learn so much more about how he is in the Father, and the Father is in him and the sweet relationship they share. But let's cut back to the disciples here. They were probably feeling good about themselves. I mean, they finally weren't confused, at, at least in their minds. And that's a significant moment because they have spent the entire discourse talking about how confused they are. It was very repetitive if you've been with us for the whole time. They keep coming back to how confused they were, but now they get it. And yet Jesus just shatters all of their self-confidence. He says, the hour has come when they will all leave him. And I think in that is a warning for us. 
We should not take courage in our human wisdom and strength. The disciples' understanding, without the Spirit's indwelling and without abiding in Christ, got them nowhere. So if you're here today and you're trusting your own wisdom, your own righteousness and strength to save you, to keep you, hear this warning. You are not strong enough to save yourself. You and I need someone stronger to win the victory, to win our salvation. And that's where Jesus turns next. Look down at verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Remember, this is the last verse of the discourse. Jesus has been talking directly to his disciples, so by these things, I don't think he just means the last eight verses we've read. I think he means everything he's talked about in the discourse. And since we're coming to the end of this section, I think it's helpful to kind of take a moment and look back and say, okay, what are some of the things Jesus has communicated in this discourse that bring them peace? So if you got your Bible, flip back through. We'll start in chapter 14, look at some of the things Jesus has communicated to his disciples. First, he's taught them who he is, saying in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in 15.5, he's taught them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. He said in verse 15 there, you are my friends. And then Jesus has taught them the Father, Son, what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will do. He has said to them, the Father will love you. He has said, I have loved you. He has said again and again, whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will give it. He said in 1427, my peace I give to you. And then in 1526, I will send you the helper, the spirit. He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me and bear witness about me. He will teach you. He will bring to remembrance all that I have said. He will be in you and with you forever. Finally, the encouraging words Jesus has spoken is he tells them about the future. In 1622, he says that they will have sorrow, but it will turn to joy that no one will take from them. And even in a strange way, when you think about the last verse, verse 32 of chapter 16, that they will all desert him. In many ways, it's encouraging because it shows that he knows what they will do, and yet he still loves them, and he wants them to have peace and joy. I could share more and more, but I think we should just stop and take a moment and think about what encouragement Christ has shared in these chapters. The Jesus we love is not just some good teacher, but he is the way to the Father, the only way. He is the revelation of the Father. He is the one who sends the Spirit. So now Father, Son, and Spirit are all working on our behalf. What peace we can have in Jesus because of these truths. 
And I think with the 11 disciples, Jesus knows they're about to betray him. The next hours are not going to be filled with peace and joy. They're going to be filled with fear and failure. But he also knows there is a future hour coming when they need these truths, and they will need to take courage. And so he gives these truths to them and to us right here. How loving and gracious our Savior is that he knows our weakness, and he looks beyond it and calls us back to peace in him. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but in Jesus we will have peace. And I think even that term, in me, in Jesus, it calls us back to chapter 15 about abiding in Christ. When we abide in Christ, we have this peace despite the tribulations of the world. So those are a very quick overview of some of the truths we've learned. But in many ways, I think Jesus saves some of the best for last. He says, he tells them this with the last words in this discourse. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I think the disciples were likely anxious coming into this conversation. Uh, even just a few verses earlier in John 16, Jesus said to them, whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's concerning in many ways. And yet Jesus tells them, take heart. I have overcome the world. Maybe it felt to the disciples something like they're coming with their master to a wrestling ring. And they're facing this evil, scary opponent. And all of a sudden, the master is in the ring, and he just turns to them and taps them in and says, you're up. Go ahead. They're like, wait, no, 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 I'm not ready for that. But instead, I think verse 33 shows that it's as if Jesus comes into the ring. He overcomes the opponent, hog ties the opponent, and only then taps his disciples into the ring. Jesus faced the devil, the world, and triumphed over them. But I think a lot of us are still confused. We're like, you might say he triumphed, but I mean, the disciples are getting killed. That doesn't look like victory. That doesn't like, look like an overcome opponent. I think one verse that might help is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 30, 36, which I think will be on the screen here. Paul writes, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, you're probably like, this does not sound like victory. This does not sound like a defeated opponent. But he goes on, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, in the world we will have tribulation, even death. But in Christ we have the peace that comes from being brought back to the Father so that no one and nothing can separate us from his love. That is the victory. It's victory over Satan and the world because, I mean, 
Think about the things Satan and the world want. Satan wants glory for himself and not for God. But at the cross, Jesus overcame Satan and secured for himself lasting glory and praise from every nation. Jesus has triumphed. Satan and the world want to separate us from the love of the Father by causing us to turn from Jesus. But because we are united to Jesus through faith, because of his death and resurrection, nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. Jesus has triumphed. Satan and the world want to disprove Jesus, expose him as a fraud. We see it all the time today. New articles or ideas that Jesus didn't really do those miracles. He's just a good teacher. But at the resurrection, Jesus demonstrated for all time that he is God, that he is everything he said he was. And even if the world does kill disciples and believers, which still happens today, even then, Jesus' resurrection means we too will be raised. So yes, Jesus has triumphed. And yet, I think there's still skirmishes today with Satan and the world. I think they're a lot more like the skirmishes that happen when Germany signs the papers acknowledging their defeat at the end of World War II. Skirmishes still happened, but the war had already been won, and it is true here, too. We still experience battles, but Jesus has won the war. He secured the victory and triumphed over the enemy. So the command for the disciples is take heart, take courage. The 11 disciples would go out and face mobs. They would face kings, councils of religious leaders. They needed this command to take courage because of Christ's victory. And we need it too. The world, which again is that sinful society in rebellion against Jesus, that world is still alive and well, kicking today. So we need courage because of Jesus' victory. First, take courage in how you view the future. I think many of us express anxiety about the state of the world around us. It's not wrong to grieve the sin. That's very important and good, but our anxiety is not right. Part of the issue we have is that I think we have this wrong assumption about the world. We think that the society around us in the U.S. Is, should be neutral or, or basically good. But no, the world, the world is just being the world. They're opposed to Jesus, and that shouldn't surprise us. But our main issue, I think, as we look towards the future, is that we forget Jesus has already overcome the world. The world cannot defeat him. There will be no time now or in the future when the world hamstrings Jesus' work on earth. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And the message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So, as you look to the future, don't speak with like a defeatist mentality. 
like it's all hopeless, like it's all going down and there's no way the church can survive this. Don't cower in the corner of the ring like your defeat is inevitable. Take courage. The victory is sure because Christ has already won it. And I challenge you too, take courage in the way you talk to the world. How would your conversations be different if you were to remember Christ's victory in your conversations? You wouldn't change the message of the gospel and think, we need to switch this up to find something that's going to succeed. No, Christ crucified and resurrected has already won the victory. We're just telling people that. And at Lakeside, we've tried to do this. We're trying to set a model of just renouncing gimmicks and underhanded ways, instead simply calling people to the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That has the power to save. And we believe that because Christ has already overcome the world. And I would say don't change the message out of fear of what the world might think of you. It's true, the message of the cross is foolish and offensive to the world. But I think we shouldn't let that response make us change the message at all. It is still the power of God for salvation. And remembering Jesus has already overcome the world gives us the confidence not to change the message, but boldly speak it. Even the way we speak it should be courageous. I've been convicted a lot of times I come and speak kind of apologetically about the cross. Like maybe I'm embarrassed of the truths of God. It's just my fear of man when I speak of the wrath of God or the atonement as if I'm talking about like some crazy uncle I have. No, speak boldly. Christ has overcome. And these are glorious truths. And I would just ask you, pray for me, pray for our pastors. It is a terrible thing to have a pastor who fears the world and acts and teaches according to that fear. I don't ever want to teach or live like that. So pray for me. Pray for the teachers and the leaders here at Lakeside. And yes, pray for one another. The Christian life is simple, but it's often scary. We are called to say truths that nobody wants to hear. Jesus often calls us to step out in faith, to try something new, something nobody else is doing that's scary. But let us all take courage because Christ has overcome the world. In conclusion, I think there are a lot of similarities between Jesus' victory and Winston Churchill's victory and leadership. I think both were fighting against enemies that were wicked. Both had moments when they were forsaken and fighting alone, but there's one key difference. Although they both refused to conform to the wicked enemy, only Jesus had the power to transform his enemy. And that's the most striking thing about the way Jesus overcomes the world, the way he can overcome the world. Look at, when you look at the book of John, it's so surprising because not only is the world talked about as the enemy that rejoices at his death, that fights against him, 
but the world is also talked about as the object of his grace and salvation. Look at all these instances. John 1, 29, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's called the light of the world in John 9, 5. And we all know this, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that sinful society, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is incredible that one way Jesus overcomes the world is by dying to save those people in the sinful world who will come and trust in him. And if you're here today and you've not believed in Jesus, you don't believe that you need him to be saved, you don't believe he's God, and you need to see you're part of the sinful world in rebellion against him, in unbelief. You are the enemy of Christ. As John 16, 9 says, you're convicted of sin because you have not believed in Jesus. He is truly God, and you've rejected that. But Jesus is a gracious victor. He offers to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light if you will simply repent and believe. And we would ask you to do it today because you will be overcome. That's the truth of the matter. Jesus will overcome one way or another. And for you, it's either going to be by repenting and putting your faith in Jesus and being transformed to love him and know him, or it's going to be by obstinately refusing and in, in the end being conquered and judged for your sin. We would ask you, please don't take that path. We want to talk to you about that. We want to welcome you. We want to point you to Christ, who is the gracious victor, who wants to transfer you into his kingdom. Again, for all the believers in here, I hope we take this chapter with us. I pray that as we look at this passage, we will take courage because of the Father's love and because of the victory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, my heart goes out to any here today who, who do not believe in you. I pray that just as you said, light shine out of darkness, I pray that you would shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of your glory, the victor. I pray that they would repent and trust in you and follow you. And for the believers in here, I pray with the rest of our service, I pray that you'd help us sing the praises of Christ the victor, that you'd help us come to this table of the Lord's Supper, which is a table of victory and triumph over our sin, our shame, over Satan and the world. Help us come and rejoice in what you have done. I pray that we be filled with courage and joy because of this passage, because of these truths. And I pray that we could sing with joy like Miriam on the other side of the Red Sea, because our God has triumphed gloriously. Help us believe that. Help us live like that's true and worship you with the rest of the time we have today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.